Welcome back to the History of South Africa podcast with me, your host, Tess Latham. This is episode 10, and we're looking at the period around the mid-1600s. The Dutch have eclipsed the Portuguese Far East maritime trade and are looking to exploit the Indies as effectively as possible. Back in Southern Africa, the Khoikhoi have no idea what the century will bring, which includes the beginning of the destruction of their way of life in Table Bay as the first colonists arrive. Despite the English and Dutch now beginning to use Table Bay as a stop-off point, St. Helena was still the preferred route to the Indies for most of the 17th century. As I explained previously, the currents off the West African coast are treacherous and the Portuguese had experienced a few disasters in Southern Africa as they tried to enslave locals. By 1620, the number of European ships anchoring in the shadow of Table Mountain had increased but not reached the flood of vessels that would characterize the period after the first colony set up by the Dutch VOC official Jan van Riebeck in 1652. In the early 1600s, Dutch and English ships would pass by the bay and were using it as a stop-off point to leave and collect letters, as well as trade a few cattle and sheep from the Khoikhoi. The letters would be left under what were known as post office stones, which are now in various South African museums. Then in 1613, a homeward-bound ship called Hector, owned by the Honourable East India Company of England, stopped off at Saldana Bay. Its captain, Towerson, ordered the crew to kidnap a man who they promptly named Korea. This unfortunate man was carried back to London where he lodged with Sir Thomas Smith, the first governor of the Honourable East India Company. Korea appears to have been treated well, including having his own suit of armour fashioned by blacksmiths. But once he learned enough of the language, he would lie on the ground and cry in broken English, Korea, go home, Sultana, go, home, go. This story ends happily, for Korea was duly returned to Sultana Bay, with a few trinkets the English thought he'd be happy to keep. He wasn't. As soon as he landed on the shore, Korea threw off his clothes, threw away the trinkets, and dressed in sheepskins as before. The English dropped in from time to time to visit Korea over the next year or two, and he taught his people to chant Sir Thomas Smith English ships. Visitors found him helpful, providing cattle and sheep, but Korea had learned quite a bit from observing the Londoners. The Khoikhoi now drove a much harder bargain for the beasts, which immediately annoyed the Dutch. The Khoikhoi also understood that the Dutch and English were completely different people, and locals began to learn both languages. The Khoikhoi language, of course, is full of clicks, and no Englishman or Dutchman could begin to pronounce the extraordinary words they'd heard, and this led directly to the name so hated by modern Khoikhoi descendants, the Hottentots. It was an onomatopoeic name like so many we'll hear about in the coming podcasts. Then the English had the first bite of trying to land men to live on the Table Bay shore, but this did not end well. Sir Thomas Rowe put in a Table Bay with four ships in 1615. On board one of these were eight prisoners who were described as lewd malefactors, criminals from England. It's interesting that the English would try this again in the 18th century with far more success after Captain Cook sailed to Australia and the English would seek to colonize that great continent with more lewd malefactors. So in 1615, the eight were duly landed ashore in Table Bay and were told their lives had been spared as long as they explored the region and reported back. This time of contemplation was also thought to be useful for the eight in order to repent their evil ways. One man repented immediately. He was killed by the Khoikhoi, who were enraged that their beloved bay beach 
had been soiled by the English. Four members of this ragtag bunch managed to fashion a raft and rowed the flimsy contraption out to Robin Island. Three others drowned. So it was then that the first men marooned and imprisoned on the famous Robin Island were English prisoners who could not make a go of it at the beach under the famous Table Mountain. As with South African history generally, it's packed with ironic and sardonic moments. The survivors were collected from the island months later by a passing English ship, but it appears they had not fully repented. Upon arrival back in England, the four stole someone's purse and were then hanged for their pains. Some people just never learn. In 1620, the English had another shot at settling citizens in southern Africa. Andre Schilling and Humphrey Fritz Herbert of the English East India Company landed north at Saldana Bay and formally announced it as royal territory seized on behalf of James I. King James declined that gift, and once more, the Bay and Southern Africa beckoned would-be adventurers. Remember in the previous episode I mentioned that the Dutch and English had agreed at this point to share the Bay, so King James was probably just being cautious. Anyway, he had bigger problems at home, including a decision by Puritans in September 1620 to sail the Mayflower with 41 saints or English separatists largely from Holland on board, along with 40 strangers or secular planters from London, as well as 23 servants and hired workers from Plymouth. Their destination was not Cape Town, it was Cape Cod. As we're going to see, the history of the United States and South Africa has many resonances. Both nations were to have their frontier experiences. In 1627, a young man called Thomas Herbert visited the Cape and sketched the bay and its environs, and also calculated the height of Table Mountain fairly accurately, 3,500 feet. The Khoikhoi were described as short, agile, well-formed and active. Civil enough when treated fairly, but also expert at pocketing anything of value left lying around. I'm sure the Khoikhoi thought of the English as overdressed, overweight and overbearing. The English travellers were amazed at the Khoikhoi ability as cattlemen in breeding fine animals, maintaining them in good condition and controlling their movements by whistling. That was a skill I mentioned a couple of podcasts ago when a Portuguese slave trader called Dalmeida had died along with 50 of his men overrun by a Khoi Khoi warring party that used their cattle as their strike force. There were a few cultural practices that disgusted the English, such as the Khoi Khoi covering themselves with animal fat and wearing entrails as bangles around their legs. However, there was not a consistent attempt to find out what is really going on away from the beaches at this time. No European had come anywhere close to making his or her way inland from the Cape Peninsula. Everything there could be dragons, to misquote the maps of the period. Meanwhile, the Dutch East India Company took over St. Helena and increased its holdings in the Indies. The Dutch also began strengthening their grip on the west coast of Africa at Gorea off the Senegalese coast, as well as Elmina and Axum. But it was the wrecking in 1647 of the Harlem in Table Bay that was to prove to be the basis of the shift in how the Netherlands regarded Southern Africa. The crew of the Harlem managed to make it to shore and remained there for a year, growing their own food in a little garden. The return fleet rescued them 12 months later, and they were glad to leave. None really had a good word to say about the Cape, at least initially. The admiral of the return fleet cursed Southern Africa, because there were so few supplies available, and they had to head northwest first to St. Helena from the bay to resupply themselves with important vegetables and fruit before the long haul back to Europe. Somewhere along the route home, however, absence made the heart grow fonder. 
The captain of the Harlem, Leonard Janssen, filed his report back at VOC headquarters in Amsterdam, and he and fellow crew member Nicolas Brut spoke about Table Bay in more glowing terms. One of the ship's surgeons, who had sailed back with Prout and Janssen, had spent some time on the shore with the castaways, and he was a man by the name of Johannes van der Riebeck, known to his friends as Jan. He gave a rather uncomplimentary description of the Koikoi, calling them a faithless rabble. Unfortunately for the Koikoi, he'd be back in 1652. After much debate, the Chamber of Amsterdam was instructed to make the Cape a strongly held rendezvous in place of St. Helena. The reason was pragmatic. Wild dogs in St. Helena, brought by sailors over the previous 50 years, had begun to ravage the local game. More about that in a moment. By 1644, the Heren 17, who oversaw the VOC, informed the new Union of the Netherlands that their places and strongholds in the East India should not be regarded as national conquests, but as property of private merchants. These could hold them or sell them to whomever they wished, even to the King of Spain, their arch-enemy. That set the Heren 17 free from state interference. They would meet three times a year to decide on important matters relating to VOC trade and the government. The capital of the Dutch East India Empire was Batavia in Java, where both the Governor-General and Council of India was based. It was this freeing up of European-based thinking that led to the creation of Cape Town as a supply stop with Dutch boots on the ground. The system of authority in Asia originated in the need to exert control over the trade monopoly in spices. The VOC's vast network of trading posts in the East was the real purpose of the company, profiting from the exchange of European and Asian goods by means of its huge fleets. Three of these fleets left the Netherlands for Batavia every year, and two returned home. So it was on March 20, 1651, that the 17 approved a proposal discussed for almost two years in various committees. That too... Provide that the East India ships to and Batavia may procure herbs, flesh, water, and other needful refreshments, and by this means restore the health of their sick, a general rendezvous be formed at the Cape of Good Hope. Thus it was then that Cabo del Boa Esperance, as it was known since Bartolomé Dias sailed there in 1488, was to become a Dutch colony. Before this period, various reports suggested that the Cape could offer nothing except, and I quote, water and a little scurvy grass. They had not discovered the delights of the Cape's feinbos yet, I'm afraid. What had changed the here in 17's mind? Well, by the late 1640s, the wild pigs and goats on St. Helena had been almost exterminated by those dogs I mentioned a moment ago. This was the period that Dutch ships stopping off at the tiny island midway between South America and Africa could offer only a few herbs, a few apples and lemons. Meanwhile, Another ship, the Remonstrance, had been wrecked in Table Bay in March 1647. Like the crew of the Harlem, they also managed to make it to the beach under the looming Table Mountain, and, like the survivors, spent an entire year surviving in the fairest cape. The crew of the Remonstrance were a far more enterprising lot, and reported that Table Valley had fertile, well-watered soil. They believed a variety of vegetables and fruit could be grown, including the all-important citrus saving future sailors from scurvy. The remonstrance recommended making a garden at Table Bay, which would then become a compulsory stop for VOC ships sailing to and from Batavia. They duly reported back to the Heren 17 in July 1649 that 
The service, advantage, and profit of making a fort and a garden at the Cabo del Boa Esperanche would prevent sickness. Reduced provisions on board, meaning more space for the spices, which meant bigger profits. Fresh water gushed out of Table Mountain. A pier could be constructed and the water piped straight to the ships. Accidents could be prevented by those on shore guiding captains using a form of lighthouse and fires. More importantly, they scotched the fairy tale that the Koi Koi were cannibals, which the Portuguese had spread as a rumour after Delmeda had been chopped up. Moreover, these Koi Koi, or the Hottentots as the Dutch called them, learned Dutch easily and were kind, and they could be converted into good Protestants, which came as a sweetener. Finally, they introduced what in strategically thinking terms could be called the clincher. If the VOC didn't occupy the Cape, public enemies like the Spanish or Portuguese could seize the useful harbour and then attack their spice ships. Needless to say, the Heeren 17 were now all ears. The Cape's greatest advantage was its temperate Mediterranean climate without tropical diseases, where Europeans could live and grow fruit and vegetables unlike the Dutch West African territories. Scurvy was still killing many crew members, and the hospital in Batavia was full of sick sailors, which of course cost a lot of money to treat. It was crowded with invalids, said one report, who often lie there for months without doing any work but drawing wages notwithstanding. Shock. Money going to waste as these unproductive sailors lounged around with scurvy? The VOCs here in 17 decided it was time to send someone down to the Cape to set up a refreshment station. There's a lot of historical myth-making about the man who ended up starting the first colony in the Cape that led eventually to where we are now, South Africa. Let us probe the character of this man first, just to set various records straight. Jan van Riebeck was a thick-set short man of 33, tanned dark brown by the son of the West Indies, Siam and China. He'd been hard-bitten by the freezing winds of Greenland. He was not the slim-faced, tall character South Africans learned to know on their banknotes in popular culture. He was also a reformed financial criminal. Van Riebeck joined the Vereniigde Oost-Indische Company as an assistant surgeon and sailed to Batavia in April 1639. From there, he went to Japan. Then, in 1645, he took charge of the company trading station at Tonking, or Tonkin, in Vietnam. While based there, Van Riebeck had defied a ban on private trading and was fired and publicly humiliated, but was eventually reinstated. Van Riebeck's main aim after this unsavory incident was to make it back to the East and to make a name for himself there. He was a highly motivated organizer, as we've already heard, and had something of the entrepreneur about him. In many ways, he was the ideal man to lead a group of men who were then tasked with building a fort which would bear the name of Good Hope, capable of housing at least 80. These men in turn were expected to plant a large garden in what the Heeren 17 called the best and fattest land, and to keep on good terms with the natives for the sake of the cattle trade. The document which Van Riebeck carried to the Cape included a few lines about God blessing the work, and that many souls would be brought to the Christian reformed religion and to God. As historian Eric Walker notes, these things look good in a prospectus. The new commander Van Riebeck's main duty was to ensure the water supply and the meat to grow vegetables and fruit, and therefore save the lives of many who would otherwise die of scurvy. So no pressure then. We'll halt the stockade building at this point. Next podcast, we're going to look at the year 1652 in some detail, 
as it's probably one of the most important in South Africa's history. Please rate the podcast on iTunes if you have the inclination. You can also head off to my website, desmondlatham.blog, for some background maps and thoughts. If you're in a hurry, send me a comment through my Twitter account, at Des Latham. Until next, goodbye.